All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the New Testament. If you are new to the listener's commentary, just wanted to let you know that I have a free 30-page ebook on my website designed to help you read the Bible well and apply it to your life well. It's just called Bible and Life, and it gives five strategies for hearing the Bible, reading it well, and five strategies for heeding the Bible, putting it to practice in your life. That's totally free. It's on my website, uh, listenerscommentary.com. So, so if you're interested in that, swing over to listenerscommentary.com and sign up for my newsletter and receive that free ebook. All right, in this session, we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. And in this paragraph, this section, we begin the third major section of the letter. So chapters 1 through 7, the first major section. Chapters 8 and 9, second major section. And now here in chapter 10, we begin the third major section of the letter. And it is a hard shift from the section in 8 and 9 about the collection for the Jerusalem Christians to this chapter, just a really hard shift. It's at this point where, you know, some people have said, man, it just seems like maybe there was a huge break. Maybe we actually got part of a second, you know, another letter attached to it and all sorts of crazy theories about why it's such a hard shift. But when you sit down and read the whole letter in one or two sittings, what you'll notice is a lot of the themes of the earlier chapters, chapters one through seven particularly, begin to show up here again in chapters 10 and following. And it seems as if the theology of ministry that Paul explained in 1 through 7 now is being used and applied to the remaining opponents to his ministry there in Corinth. And so even though it's a bit of a hard shift in tone, it's not a hard shift really in content. And what Paul is doing in Chapters 10 through the end of the letter in this third major section is he, he really is focusing on the remaining opponents and the remaining troublemakers there in the church in Corinth. And so those guys have really been in the back of his mind through much of the letter. And some of the things he said early on, he kind of, you know, you could see was pointing in their direction, glancing in their direction. And doing so while focusing on the repentant majority in the church. But now, here beginning in chapter 10, it's not a glance. Now he's going to directly confront those who still oppose him and his ministry there in Corinth. And one key fact of the situation behind the letter needs to be kept in mind, and that's this. That there is this group of people, we don't know how big of a group, but it's a group of people who have come into Corinth from somewhere else out of town. They have shown up with letters of recommendation commending them, and they have sought to usurp Paul's place of influence and authority in the church, and they have done so by running down Paul, running down his approach to uh, ministry, all the while promoting themselves as really super spiritual and the ones who really know. In fact, Paul will call them in this last section super apostles. And I imagine you should put quotes around that. I imagine that Paul's probably a little sarcastic when he, he uses that phrase for them. If that's how they want to think of themselves, then all well and good. And so those people um, have stirred up all sorts of the trouble in Corinth. And so a lot of what Paul says in this section is aimed at that group. And it's aimed at any of those in the church who are still siding with that group. And so that's what's going on here. Now Paul is going to direct the unrepentant minority in the church as he seeks to really 
see if he can't get more and more of them to come around, change their tune, so that when he shows up, he won't have to be tough and harsh with them. And so this third major section begins like this in chapter 10, verse 1. Now, I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. And just notice how emphatic Paul is. He says, I, Paul, myself. I mean, he's being emphatic about this. Um, he is He's going to uh, just say, with all the authority that I have in Jesus, that's where this is going, I'm urging you. And notice he's urging them or exhorting them by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. These two qualities that characterized Christ and that Paul believes apostles and servants of Christ should emulate. They should have the same kind. Meekness, here is the word prautes in Greek. It's a difficult word to translate into English, but a lot of times it's translated gentleness. It has the idea of yielding, of being considerate of others, of not using your strength, your power, your authority to uh, destroy other people, to tear down other people, to harm other people. That's the idea. Um, it's not being a bull in a china shop. It's not being insensitive or inconsiderate of others. It's being meek, considerate, uh, thoughtful, seeing things from another person's perspective. So that's what he means by meekness. And then he says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And that word uh, translated gentleness is more the sense of forbearing. It's cutting people some slack. It's uh, making some allowances, right? It's just being forbearing, putting up with people and their differences and even their shortcomings, right? That's the idea of gentleness. And so Paul says, I urge you by these two qualities of Christ that, that, are, that Christ had and that he gives to his people. And then he says, I, again, restating it, again, emphatic, I, who am meek when face-to-face uh, -face with you, but bold towards you and absent. And he, he's getting at, and we'll see this in what follows, he's getting at a contention and a claim of those who oppose him in Corinth. Maybe even it's been a claim that has been leveraged by this group that's come in from the outside, that Paul is just so... Uh, meek, and that word meek in this second half of verse 1 isn't the same word translated meek above, and I just wish they would be consistent so we can see the difference. This is the word, a word that means humble or just basically lowly. It's a word that in the the Greek world of the day was actually not viewed as a good thing. It was viewed as a, a form of weakness. It was almost like a vice. It's a bad thing to be humble and lowly, right? But that's the word he uses here. So I who am lowly when face to face with you, but bold when absent. And again, that statement is really building off of this this criticism that has been made against Paul, probably by this uh, group that has come in from the outside. We'll see how that plays out in what follows. And so he's going to appeal to them on the basis of this humility, this lowliness, this meekness, this gentleness. And what's a bit ironic about that is that kind of uh, demeanor and posture is really at the heart of the criticism against Paul 
from his opponents in the church, that he's lowly and humble. He's not assertive and self-promoting. He won't even let them be his, uh, you know, let them be a benefactor to him and receive money from them. And he doesn't have any credentials or letters of recommendation to boast about. And he, he just uses common, ordinary speech. He's so ordinary and lowly and all of that. That's the idea here that um, has been a criticism. And Paul is saying, well, by all of that, I'm exhorting you. I'm appealing to you. And what is he appealing for? Well, he continues in verse 2. I ask, here's his appeal. I ask that when I am present, that is when I come to you and I'm there and I'm present with you, I don't need to be bold with the confidence which I intend to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. And so his his appeal, here's what he's asking, is that when I show up, I'm not going to have to show up with authority, right? That I'm not going to have to come and be bold and tough. That, uh, you know, don't make me show up there and have to get tough with you. That's the idea. I don't want to have to do that. He says, I anticipate, I intend or anticipate being Uh, bold and confident and courageous against some. Notice those three words, bold, confidence, courageous, all speak to the strong way that Paul anticipates he'll have to deal with some who still run him down, who still oppose him, who are still making false claims about him and his ministry. And then when he shows up, he anticipates there'll still be some of those and he's going to have to be strong in uh, opposing them and dealing with them. But that's not his preferred way of operating. So he's asking them, he's appealing to them, notice that, um, that they would come around and change their tune so they they won't have to experience that. And notice how he describes those who are opposed to him in the church. He says, those who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. This is how Paul's opponents, again, probably those who have come in from the outside, have this has been one of the ways they've attacked Paul. He walks according to the flesh. Um, that's part of their case against Paul. They don't, they don't think he really walks according to the Spirit. And presumably, uh, the various specific accusations that we've seen throughout this letter of 2 Corinthians uh, are used by them as evidence of this fact, that they think Paul walks according to the flesh. I mean, look, he's so wishy-washy in his travel plans, and Paul has dealt with that. He's so weak and lowly, and just look at all that physical suffering that he he deals with. He doesn't have any letters of recommendation, and he doesn't promote himself and promote his achievements for the gospel. He clearly walks according to the flesh, not according to the Spirit. But while Paul is going to go on and he's going to explain that his approach to them, the Corinthians, and his approach to ministry is actually not according to the flesh, regardless of what some people say and think. And so in verses 3 through 6, that's what he's going to show. He's going to describe his approach and that it's not fleshly. Now, one of the things that's important to realize is that verses 3 through 6 is all one sentence in Greek. And that means we have to work hard to trace the flow of thought to see how all the ideas are connected. And so in verses 3 through 6, what we're about to read, Paul's primary focus is on demolishing false ideas. And it seems his primary opponent are his opponents and detractors and those false ministers who've come in from the outside there in Corinth. And so Paul says this in verse 3 and following. For... Though we walk in the flesh, in other words, we, we live in a body, a fleshly body, and we live in the world. So we walk 
in the flesh, we do not wage battle according to the flesh. That is, even though we're just as fleshly as everyone else, we live in this world, right? And we deal with real people. We walk in the flesh. We don't wage war according to the flesh means the manner of our ministry is not according to the values and the aims and the strategies of the fallen world and of fallen fleshly humanity. So, yes, we walk in a body, but we don't wage war according to the flesh. And then he continues and says in verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare and the picture of this waging battle and warfare that he uses here in these first couple of verses is this, this imagery of warring against the flesh, warring against the world. And we'll see exactly what he means by that here in the next verse. But he says this, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And so he's saying we don't we don't wage war according to the flesh. That's not how we do it because the weapons we use aren't of the flesh. That is, they are not uh, from this fallen world. They're not the same weapons or tools or strategies that this fallen world uses to achieve their objectives. Our weapons, he says, are divinely powerful. Literally, they are powerful from God. They're not sarkika, fleshly, but dunita, powerful, and specifically they're powerful of God or from God. God's the one who, who bestows them with power, and their aim is the destruction of fortresses. That is to tear down strongholds and fortresses. Now, what does he mean by battle and waging war and destroying fortresses? What kind of fortresses and what kind of warfare is he engaging in? Well, he, he makes that clear in verse 5. He says, We are destroying arguments and all arrogance raised against the knowledge of God. That's the, the kind of warfare he's engaged in. He's engaged in tearing down arguments against the knowledge of God and tearing down anything that's literally lifted up, every high thing or anything lifted up against the knowledge of God. And so using, continuing the imagery of of battle there with things lifted up against the knowledge of God, he's going to tear those things down. Um, and so what he's warring against is the lack of the knowing of God and the knowing of God's ways. And his aim is to tear those things down and the second half of verse five, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so that's Paul's goal. He's going to tear down the things that are raised up against the knowledge of God, and he wants to take every idea, that's the, the idea of thought, every idea, every purpose and plan, he wants to take all those things, that's the sense of that word thought, captive to the obedience of Christ. And so that's his goal, is to help um, the ideas and the plans and the purposes of human beings uh, uh, take them captive to the obedience of Christ. So let's just summarize where we're at so far. Paul says he's working to undermine every false idea and every argument raised up against the knowledge of God and to bring the ideas and the purposes of people into obedience to Jesus. And the weapons he uses for that, he says, they're from God and they are powerful for this task. Then Paul goes on in verse 6 and says, and we are ready. So we're 
tearing down everything that's raised against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and we're ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. And so verse 6 now aims directly at the situation in Corinth, not just his ministry in general, but specifically what's going on in Corinth. And the idea in verse 6 is that once the, the, it seems that all the Corinthians who are going to repent have repented. That seems to be what he's getting at when he says, whenever your obedience is complete, whenever the majority of them have repented and all that are going to repent have repented, then Paul is ready to come and punish uh, those who continue to oppose him. And that's what he seems to be getting at. So we're ready to punish all disobedience and whenever your obedience is complete. So what Paul has just described in verses three through six is his way of operating and his aim in ministry. It's not fleshly, as some have claimed. It's actually from God, and it's aimed at helping people obey Christ. Then, again, since he's now turned to addressing the situation specifically in Corinth, here's what he says to them in verse 7, specifically to those who are still opposed to him. You're looking at things as they are outwardly. He seems to be saying that those who accuse him of these things and those who accuse him of walking according to the flesh and those who buy into that accusation, they're the ones that are actually looking at things from a merely outward, external, really a fleshly sort of way of looking at things. Um, they're the ones who are really operating according to the flesh. And Paul's already sort of noted this earlier in the letter in chapter 5, verse 12, there he is speaking to those who have repented and who have realized the error of their ways and they want to mend their ways with Paul. Speaking to them, he says this in chapter 5, verse 12. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but we're giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. That phrase, take pride in appearance, is the same basic idea as here. It's the idea of looking on the face. You want, you want fleshly human honor. You want to look good before the face of people. And Paul's more interested in looking good before the face of God. And so over the next few sentences, Paul is going to challenge them to think again about Paul and about his relationship to Jesus and about how Paul uses his authority. And he's going to call them to look beyond the appearance, look beyond the face, look beyond externals, below the surface in how they evaluate Paul and his ministry. And so Paul says in the second half of verse 7, if anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, have him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so too are we. In other words, Paul is saying that he belongs to Jesus just as much as these guys claim that they do. And in view of the overall context of the letter and the overall context of this specific chapter, uh, I think it, when he says that he is Christ, it means more than just he's a Christian. Literally what he says is he is of Christ. And I think what he's getting at is more uh, as his, of his role as a minister and a servant and Jesus' representative and apostle. So like these guys come here and they're claiming uh, to be uh, of Christ. They're claiming to represent Jesus as uh, ministers and apostles. Well, guess what? I'm just as much of, as that as they are. That's what Paul is getting at here in the second half of verse 7. Then in verses 8 through 11, he deals with how he carries out his authority 
in that role as Christ's representative, as being his servant, how does he carry out his authority? Notice verse 8 will begin with the word for. That is, he's explaining what he just said at the end of verse 7. So he says, for, explaining that, if I boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up, not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. The authority, in other words, that Paul has is from the Lord himself. It was given to him by the Lord. It was given specifically not to tear them down, but to build them up. And so if Paul celebrates his authority or asserts his authority as he's doing here, right? I don't want to have to come and be tough on you. If he's going to assert his authority, he, he's not going to be put to shame. He's got the right to use that authority because it came from the Lord. But the goal of it is ultimately to build them up and not to destroy them. Then he goes on and says in verse 9, For I don't want to, to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. This is part of this issue where he's uh, you know, lowly and humble and weak when he's with them in person. But then when he's gone, right, he's so bold when he writes his letters. And so now in verse 10, we get the specific um, thing that the, the opponents are saying about him. For they say, verse 10, his letters are weighty and strong. But his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. So this is um, one of the accusations they're making against Paul. This is one of the ways they're trying to run him down. And one of the accusations they're using to kind of leverage against his, you know, being really of the spirit and of Christ and all of that. This is what they say. Um, The accusation is that his letters are so bold and so assertive and so strong. But then when he shows up, man, just look at him. He's not impressive to look at, and his speech is just, like, contemptible. Um, And public speaking was a big deal in Corinth. In fact, as part of their um, Isthmian games, they had rhetoric competitions. They loved powerful speakers who used skilled and formal rhetoric. And apparently, Paul just didn't do that. Paul chose not to employ such techniques in his public speaking. Now, it's clear from his letters, he's a very clear thinker and a skilled communicator, and he actually knows rhetorical technique. That's clear even from his letters. But apparently, Paul spoke in just down-to-earth, ordinary sorts of ways when he was speaking to people. And, and man, it just was unimpressive. And they used that against him. But Paul wants them to realize that when he comes, if he has to, He will be uh, weighty and strong and bold. And so he says in verse 11, have such a person, that is a person who says that sort of thing about him, have such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we will also be indeed when present. In other words, Paul's saying that I'm the same person through and through. My preferred method of operating is to be humble and lowly, not to be assertive and Uh, bold and all of that, but I'll do that if I have to, right? Like that's the major theme of this section. He said in verse one up above that he wants them to change their ways so that when he comes to them, he won't have to be tough on them and be bold. And so consider this, he says to someone who accuses him of being unimpressive and contemptible in speech, consider this, we're the same person through and through. And if we have to be tough and bold when, when we're there, we'll do it. And thinking of those persons, those people who have shown up from the outside and stirred up trouble there in Corinth, with them in mind, Paul goes on in verse 12 down through really the end of the chapter to say they've shown up 
and they compare themselves with other people and that's how they rank themselves. We don't operate that way. So look what he says in verse 12. He says, for we don't presume literally to, we don't dare to rank or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. Like Paul's like, we're not going to play that game. We got our authority from Jesus. It was given to us to build you up, not to destroy you. That's where our authority comes from. That's why I don't have letters of recommendation. That's why I've approached my ministry the way I've done. So we're not even going to dare to class or rank ourselves or compare ourselves with others who like to commend themselves and promote themselves and who have these letters of recommendations. But, Paul says, when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they have no understanding. And so these people who are saying, look, we're more important than Paul. Look at our letters of recommendation. We got these from these people and thus we're more credentialed and all of that. Paul's like, they don't really even know what they're talking about. Uh, any boasting that Paul does or any commendation that Paul has offered in this letter is so different. Um, how so? Well, they use themselves as the standard. They compare themselves to each other and say they got more authority because their letters of recommendation came from so-and-so and such-and-such. And such. For Paul, Paul says at the end of this paragraph, he'll make it clear, the only commendation that matters really is God's, and the only standard that matters is Jesus. And Paul uses that for his commendation and his approach to ministry. These guys, they're just all about kind of one-upping and comparing themselves with other people. Paul says they don't have a clue what they're talking about. Then, in verses 13 and following, the next few sentences, Paul explains how he operates and how it's not like those who commend themselves. They showed up in Corinth. It wasn't even their sphere of ministry. They've tried to usurp Paul's authority and undercut his ministry. But Paul doesn't operate that way. Paul will say in verses 13 and following that he only operates in the sphere of ministry that God gave him, and he doesn't insert himself into other people's sphere of ministry, and he really wishes these guys would do the same thing. And so he says in verse 13, but we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the domain which God has assigned to us to, as a measure to reach even as far as you. Here, what Paul means by this is the measure is Paul's sphere of ministry. He's not going to enter into somebody else's sphere of ministry. That's their domain. That's the ministry God has assigned to them. Paul's not going to operate there. He's content operating within the sphere that God has given him. And that sphere includes the Corinthians to reach even as far as you. They are his sphere of ministry. He started the church after all. These other people, they do it differently. Right? They've shown up from outside and they've tried to kind of weasel their way into Paul's sphere of ministry. And so he says in verse 14, 4, We're not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. So when he says um, we are not overextending ourselves, he means we're not going beyond our sphere of ministry. It doesn't mean we're not like overworking like we we use the phrase in English today. It means he's not going beyond his sphere of ministry as if we didn't reach you. Like we were the first to come to you, he says, in the gospel of Christ. And so to overextend themselves would it be to operate in Corinth if they hadn't been the first people to actually bring the gospel to him. Paul says we were. And so we came and we're the ones that brought the gospel to you. And so to care about them, 
and to work for their good and to use his authority for building them up and to boast in them. That's not beyond Paul's measure. It's not beyond his sphere of ministry. They're not building on the work of somebody else or invading somebody else's territory. And so he says in verse 15, we're not boasting beyond our measure, that is in other people's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our domain, within our sphere, enlarged even more by you so as to preach the gospel even to regions beyond you and not to boast in what is accomplished in the domain of other. All of this means that Paul is, really this is kind of critiquing those who have come in from the outside and they've entered into somebody else's sphere of ministry. They've tried to take over that sphere of ministry. They've run him down. And Paul's like, that's just not the way he operates. He doesn't think it's the right way to operate. We're not going to do that. We're not going to build on somebody else's labors. We're not going to go beyond our sphere, our domain. We, we actually want to go beyond you where no one else has gone with the gospel before. And so that's how we want to operate. And so Paul's boasting in ministry is not beyond his sphere. He's not going to overstate it. He's not going to overextend himself. He's not going to boast in anything other than what the Lord has done through him. And so he says in verse 17, but the one who boasts is to boast in the Lord. And this is an allusion to Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 that ultimately says our celebration and our confidence is in the Lord not in our own ability, not in whatever letters or recommendations we have, not in comparing ourselves to other people, right? All these things that these outsiders have done. Paul's like, the one who boasts is to boast in the Lord. The Lord is the standard. His provision and protection and power is all that matters. His accomplishments are what matter. And so we're going to wait on and we're going to boast in the Lord, not in ourselves. And so he ends this section in verse 18 by saying, for it is not the one who commends himself that is approved, but the one who the Lord commends. That's ultimately what matters. Uh, the Lord's commendation is what matters, not the commendation of yourself with your own claim to ability and success and whatever else it might be. And so all of this here in chapter 10 is aimed at really subverting this outside group of people who has come in, uh, invaded Paul's sphere of ministry, claimed to, to be more important and more powerful, right? And all and they're more slick, they're more rhetorically skilled, all of that. And they've, they've run Paul down. And this is all aimed at subverting them with the hope that more people in the Corinthian church will repent and turn back to Paul and join that repentant majority so that when Paul shows up, he doesn't have to show up with a, a rod of discipline. He doesn't have to show up uh, with authority to to correct and confront and all that. He's done that. He doesn't want to have to do that again. He sent the stern letter. He doesn't want to have to show up that way. He wants to come um, like a reunion between father and children. And so this uh, section is aimed at really subverting the position and the approach of those people who have come into Corinth from the outside and stirred up so much trouble. Now, before we leave this section, let me just offer one reflection out of this. There's probably a handful of things we could reflect on. Let me just offer one, and that is a, a look at pastoral authority. 
Paul makes it clear here that he operates by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He operates on the basis of uh, humility and lowliness. And he's actually described all of that earlier in the letter. And he's applying that approach and that description from earlier in the letter to this situation. But what he says in the middle of this, this paragraph here in chapter 10 is that his authority that was given to him from Jesus is for building up and not tearing down. And that um, he even in this section, he appeals to them. He asks them because he's using his authority in this the spirit of Christ that's meek and gentle. And he really sets a good example for all who have any sort of role of authority in the church, in Christ. How do we handle that authority? How do we use that authority? Are we heavy-handed and overbearing, or do we approach it with the meekness and gentleness of Christ? And yes, Paul says here that if need be, he will be tough. But you can bet Knowing what we know about Jesus and knowing what we know about Paul from earlier in the letter, you can bet that even that will be done in a spirit of meekness and humility for the sake of building up and not tearing down. And so it's a good example for us as we reflect on what it looks like to carry pastoral authority. All right, thanks for tuning in to this session of the Listener's Commentary. The Listener's Commentary is a crowdfunded, listener-supported Bible teaching ministry made possible by the generous support of people just like you. So thanks a ton for your support. And if you've been impacted by this ministry in any way, there's two ways you could really help this ministry grow. You could join in the team of supporters uh, by going to listenerscommentary.com, clicking the Give button, and setting up a monthly donation there. Or... You could share the listener's commentary with your sphere of influence through your podcast, through your ministry, through your friends, on your social media channels to help more and more people find the listener's commentary. So thank you so much for your support. May God bless you for it.